Hello, and welcome to A Glimpse of Hell, a new podcast that discusses the cultural issues surrounding famous true crime story events and their perpetrators. You may find all social media links to this channel through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at A Glimpse of Hell. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our true crime podcast. Thank you for joining us as we view A Glimpse of Hell. My name is Rachel, and we're recording the podcast here from Melbourne, Australia. We're still in lockdown, and I'm with my special guest and very dear friend, Matt, who's over at his house, hence the reason we're recording over the phone. Yeah, thank, Rachel, thanks for having me again as your uh semi-permanent guest i'm always (laughs) glad to discuss discuss the scum of humanity with you yeah definitely so uh so just to let um people that maybe haven't listened to matt and i's podcast before we do two podcasts we do this one a glimpse of hell we do just once a month there's plenty of true crime podcasts out there we prefer a more sort of discussional conversational style so if you're looking for sort of a podcast that goes through, this happened on this date, this happened on, that's not quite what Matt and I do. We also do a um, classic movies podcast when movies were good as well, and we employ the same style in that. We like to have a free-flowing discussion on some of the major things in either a movie or a true crime event um, that interest us and that perhaps have made you know, referring to political things going on at the time, and this is, includes movies, etc., as well, um, some of the implications of a, a true crime event. And we like to do that in our podcast. So I think it's just important for us to kind of differentiate between um, what we like to do on our, our podcast and what more sort of more structured and, and formal podcasts do because, Matt, we don't operate that way, do we? So <laughs> No, we're... Uh... No, we're very uh, casual conversationalists. We bring what comes to our forthright of mind as we go into the depths of discussion. Yeah, Although definitely. I think if we did plan ahead, I may have uh, said that statement a bit more cleanly. Yeah. <laughs> um, clearly, we, we don't work that way, <laughs> which is which is fine. There's plenty of places for structure and timing and all that in and there's plenty of fantastic podcasts, both of movies and of true crime, where you can get that. But with us, we um, we like to go through the things that we find interesting. So we're doing uh, Jack the Ripper this week. Um, so this one is anybody of any age would have some vague comprehension, especially with all sort of modern movies, storytelling. A lot of them do allude to Jack the Ripper, and of course. Jack the Ripper is basically the moniker given to an unidentified serial killer. And he was only active for a short period of time, maybe a six-month span or even a year, I guess, if you wanted to include some other victims into that. So it was mostly the summer and autumn of 1888 in the Whitechapel district of London, England. Now, Whitechapel at that time, we're in the last stages of the Victorian era. Queen Victoria was the um, ruling monarch uh, in the UK at that time and actually oversaw a lot of changes in uh, British society and the world at large. We had the Industrial Revolution and other things going on at that time. So this event happened and it was really sort of um, a mark of the times, would you say, Matt? 
you know, it was sort of like with the, you know, more people being able to read, more people going to school, they were able to read the accounts in the newspapers at the time. So I think that's yes, where this case definitely, is interesting. Yes. Well, we see, uh, like we saw from the progress of Victoria's reign, the really the first modern, uh, in the sense, country in terms of modern schooling systems, uh, science, uh, new economics and uh, social and uh, political layout, um, people becoming predominantly urban, also with a much larger scale migration because you did have that reliable transport, uh, modern economics and how uh, you had a huge crossover of population, not just from small villages into towns, but from one country's community into another. Uh, perhaps the big thing to remember when looking at the Jack the Ripper murders is that even though it's happened in the late Victorian era, we need to get rid of any impression in our mind of the stereotypical Victorian time of uh, lots of top hats and uh, pleasant um, parklands. We're talking about Whitechapel District. This was the worst place probably in history you could have lived. It was where prostitutes charged their rate at moldy bread per hour. Yeah. People were desperate. It was a horrible place. Uh, you didn't even police, I believe, didn't even go there unless they had uh, several comrades with them. So, no, it was not a pleasant place. No, it wasn't, and it really sort of showed the chasm or the schism sort of in society at that point. So if we just briefly um, look at the Victorian era before we go into the case of Jack the Ripper. So we had the first major industrial revolution. Obviously, we're going through kind of a, a second or third one now with the advent of all of the technological, handheld technology that we have now, social media, you know, the internet, etc. So it was a major time of political reform. So we had, you know, the, the bicameral, the two houses of parliament, which worked to pass and ascend bills. It was a time of social change as well. So I guess in the past, women had been very confined to the house and they were the housewife. And really, in theory, they still were. But now, with the change of the Industrial Revolution, women were now called upon to work outside of the home as well as work in the home. So in some ways, that's, you know, when we talk about feminism and all that stuff, it has its roots in the Industrial Revolution because women now could go outside of the home however effectively they could, even though they worked for nothing, really, um, and actually have a bit of stability on their own away from their husband. So not that they were running off on their own, and if you were a woman on your own at that time, you were in a really hard position, but there was just that slight sort of change um, we had people like Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin, sort of um, Charles Dickens with his, you know, sort of moral stories, Charles Darwin with, you know, his, you know, different theories on evolutionary change, etc., which went against, I guess, what, religion at that time, Matt? So that was a big sort of change, would yes, you say, as, then? Well, as far as the uh, question of um, female part in economics and social life, I think you had probably from sort of Jane Austen's time, so sort of the early 1800s onwards, a gradual increase of empathy with uh, how uh, certain women, particularly from lower classes, could be affected. So in Jane Austen's time, there was often a mention in her stories of how you could 
sort of a fall from a comfortable position through a bit of bad luck and inheritance law. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look at um, the uh, work done by Charles Dickens, and these are different authors that did play a big part in the, uh, uh, changing a, a lot of social observation and understanding of uh, what was really going on in their times because Charles Dickens did do a lot of research uh, mm-hmm. by going on the scene. But he did... Uh, get a better understanding, I think, of what it could be like for a lot of working-class women. Yeah, definitely. And then we also had things like, you know, moving away from older forms of transport. So there was, you know, railways, there was photography, there was um, the first telephone and telegraph. So the Victorian era really was the basically all of Queen Victoria's reign. Remember, she had the um, she ascended to the throne at 18, so it was 1837 to 1901. Um, and it's like you were saying that it moved away from rural life, and then the city started expanding and growing, and then we sort of saw people being confined in a different way for long hours on the farm or in labouring out in the farms to labouring in factories. And um, we had different wars like the Crimean War. And then, of course, getting towards the end of that era was the dastardly case of Jack the Ripper. So let's go into what this crime, what this crime actually was. So um, we talked at the very start of the podcast about the time frame. So it was primarily, it was 1888. Some people... Um, posit that it was the, all of 1888 because there were other victims that were killed in Whitechapel at that time who fit the kind of MO of Jack the Ripper. And remember, that was the name that the media and maybe some of the investigatory bodies, the nickname that they gave to the serial killer. The, we never confirmed either way what this person's name was, if it was just the one person or multiple people. So, well, the Jack the um, Ripper name was actually from one particular journalist who actually created a false letter from the killer to um, uh, keep the story alive. Right. Because so this is really a time of unethical journalism. Yes, that's right. It was real. I mean, has it really changed? <laughs> well, no, but, no, but like uh, this is a time when even a lot of mainstream uh, mainstream papers uh, could uh, get away with um, uh, sloppy editorship, you could say. Yes, and I mean, you know, the whole term of muckrakers and, and all and all the rest of it. I guess that the one benefit now, I suppose, with um, everyone having their own mini computer in their hands and various computers at home and with the advent of the internet is that at least you can kind of sort of fact check a little bit for yourself and people are the shooting things. The problem is that and, more and more people don't do that. No, that's true. It's actually a double-edged sword. I do. And then, you know, as we were conversing before we started recording, I was telling you a few things and you're like, oh, I wasn't aware of that. But what I was watching told me that, you know, especially with some, if anyone's following the events of what's happening in Melbourne at the moment. So um, I just had seen it on a different alternate news source. So I was venturing my opinion. But then I had watched the main news sources of the day that, you know, the 6pm news, etc. And it's not mentioned there at all. So, yeah, it's just, um, it's, Yes and no, there's always good and bad things about different eras, isn't there? So we've got the main victims that have been thought to be killed by Jack the Ripper were five Canonical five. Yeah, that's right. And um, unfortunately, these women 
really we're on the lower end of society. And when we speak about the schism between, you know, in the Victorian era, essentially, and it really hasn't changed that much now, you had the upper class, the elites, the noble ruling class. You had the middle class, which had done very well from the Industrial Revolution. So they were perhaps the owners of small businesses, the owners of factories. They ran their own businesses. They had sort of um, like family wealth between them. And then you had the working class and these were the people. And unfortunately, a lot of people that were even falling out of the working class, as Matt had said, were living in the Whitechapel area of London at that time. So you had a lot of immigrants. And unfortunately, a lot of single women or women who'd fallen on hard times, even the media made a distinction of them back then, uh, they, they, they were the victims of this person. So we had Mary Ann Nichols who was discovered on the 31st of August. She was 43 years old. We had Annie Chapman. She was 47 years old. She was on the 8th of September. We had Elizabeth Stride. She was originally from Sweden, I believe. She was 44 years old on the 30th of September. That was the dual murder that took place. Then there was... It does say uh, something about the uh, sort of uh, mobility of the time. Yes, yeah. I mean, more people were definitely coming to where they could feel and if if um, certain countries were lagging behind and they felt they could go somewhere else. I mean, look at how many people moved from Ireland after the Great Potato Famine and moved over to the US, hence the reasons, you know, there's so many people with an Irish background in the US. So, um, and then we had Catherine, poor Catherine Eddowes, who was 46. She was also on the 30th of September and she was particularly brutalised by this person. And then the last victim was poor, poor Mary Jane Kelly, who was around 25 years old, and she was on the 9th of November. So the newspapers and police in London around this time started to get taunting letters, and the letters were signed uh, Jack the Ripper. So there were three main letters, weren't there, Matt? There was um, the, the, the Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jack postcard, and then the From Hell letter. So is it the middle one that was the one that the... Um, journalist made up, and the first, the first, uh, and third it was the one, one uh, signed um, Jack the Ripper, Ripper itself. I think okay. the only one that was regarded to possibly be from the actual killer was I. I think it was uh, uh, addressed to um, the head of the. I think it was like called the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee or something like that. Yes. And okay. uh, I think that was signed "Catch Me If You Can." Okay, that's all right. We can go. We can go through that. So. Um, there were other murders that were reported, I mean, given where they were living in London and the nature of these poor women's work, but they were not, they were thought to be done by other predators on the street or other situations that the women had got themselves into, either over money. Um, and then there we was also... We have to remember that this was a very high uh, rate of crime area. And like we know, sex workers suffer from violence even now, let alone back then. That's exactly was, right. Yeah, it was basically a write-off the area where you sort of took your life into your own hands if you went yeah exactly it was you know um are we going to actually survive the night of work or or whatever so and these poor women were essentially really just paying for their board living in massive boarding houses and things like that they weren't really making any sort of money out of it it was really just hand-to-mouth sort of thing so a lot of people posit um with the investigation that they and I'm not sure what your research told you, but obviously they've never been able to pin the murder on one person, although they did posit that the person was either a doctor or perhaps a butcher because of the nature of the crimes. And without going into too many details, the women 
were either sort of gutted, a lot of the injuries were to the middle part of the torso, to their lower regions as well. Some of their faces had been interfered with, but there was a, I was looking at one sort of anatomical sketch that one of the police artists made at the time, and the woman looked like she'd just been flailed, like from the middle right through, just opened up sort of thing. So these crimes, especially then, were particularly horrible and would have required someone that had the skills to remove a kidney or other things that this Jack the Ripper was doing. And it, and it was like how a surgeon might perform surgery or how a butcher might dissect an animal, I suppose. Like The yeah. general consensus seems to be that it was, in fact, a very clumsy job on almost all occasions. It may have just been that on the particular one, victim where uh, a, was it a kidney that was removed, um, it was just mm-hmm. simply that they were able to um, hack apart enough of the body that uh, that was easy enough to do, but this was in no way a neat job. Even the fact that all the knife wounds, I believe, were quite jagged because it was a rather small knife. And if you've even got the experience of a butcher, uh, you you know that, and I just only know this because I uh, carve um, small uh, timber statues as a hobby, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a, a small knife uh, will only uh, get you so far with a major scale project. And if I know that from cutting wood, um, even if you were a butcher, you'd know a lot better. Um, so this was definitely not a, an, an expert job by any kind of um, uh, person who had experience in, in, in dealing with dissection. Uh, so, no, this was definitely a hack job in its most literal sense. Right, yeah, and and all the murders happened on the weekend. So some, the people investigating the crime, and even sleuths now who are still investigating who Jack the Ripper was, they thought perhaps it was someone who uh, worked during the week, either in London, that area, or the surrounds, or someone that maybe commuted into that district just on the weekends when they were not working. So perhaps that's how they disguised themselves, because they weren't from the area. Um, so a lot of research has been done about this. There continues to be research done about this. A lot of people, there was a research group in 2014 that identified that Jack the Ripper was perhaps a Jewish immigrant from Central Europe. Um, so uh, I'm well, not, this I'm was not a sure very high that. immigrant area uh, <laughs> yeah. because it, and we see this always. It's often um, the poorest areas that tend to be dominated by immigrant groups because naturally they're the worst off financially at the beginning when they arrive. Yes, and they also true. do the most menial work. Yeah. So that's... um. Anyway, they've identified this gentleman. They even gave him a name, Aaron Kosminski. So it'll be interesting. I haven't really read anything about him, but it'll be interesting to see. But they also called the killer Leather Apron as well because they saw this person you know, perhaps had, had worn this style of clothing. And obviously that would mean that they were a trade a tradesperson of some sort, which this person I think was. So let's just jump through to a bit of the investigations. So, yeah, as Matt was saying regarding the letters, we had the first letter, which was the Dear Boss letter, which was actually signed Jack, Jack the Ripper. And he said, don't mind giving me the trade name. So then there was the From Hell letter, uh, and that was received by George Lusk, and as Matt said, the leader of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee on the 16th of October, 1888. So they do say that when they did the analysis of these letters, that the the handwriting style is not the same as the first letter that was received, a Dear Boss letter. Um, 
Yeah, and that was the one that had the kidney that was attached to it as well, Matt. That was the one that had the kidney set with it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And once- Either, I, whoever sent it, obviously, had a rather grim sense of humour. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And then there was also a, in the middle of those two letters, there was a saucy Jack postcard as well that was on the 1st of October, 1888. So perhaps that was the one that um, people had posited that wasn't a legitimate one and was just sort of ginned up for the newspapers. Um, so, yeah, the end of the crimes came when Mary Jane Kelly, um, she was the one that was seen with a man of Jewish appearance. So perhaps this research group, that's kind of how they got onto that stream. Uh, and then they headed to her room where she was boarding um, and... Uh, and then she was killed, killed then. It was about 4 a.m. in the morning. So, and then after her untimely death, she was only 25, remember, the Ripper murders then just stopped. So whether the person got sick of it, moved away, immigrated somewhere else, they don't know. Um, and this quote-unquote Jack the Ripper has always remained unknown. And, and every historian, any person, any lay person that's investigated the case has different theories on who Jack the Ripper was. So, it is hard to believe that anyone who could take uh, victim uh, attacks uh, to such extent uh, could just stop. It doesn't seem very likely. So whatever um, did uh, get in that person's way uh, would have been quite significant to stop them committing killings like that. Uh, but it could be any number of things. It could have even that their, if their methodology improved uh, and they got away with it or if it or if it were one of the possible perpetrators that was in an asylum, it meant they couldn't get out that way. Who knows? Yeah, it's, it is interesting. So I suppose, like with many true crime cases, um, when you actually sort of like take a step back and have a look at the larger impact of what very famous true crime cases have on society, whether it's the Manson murders, O.J. Simpson... Um, you know, we discussed Jim Jones last week, you know, what's the enduring legacy, you know, people still quoting, you know, the Kool-Aid and all this sort of stuff, you know, decades and decades later, you know, don't swallow the Kool-Aid and all this sort of stuff. So these sort of true crime cases that have an indelible impact on society, there's normally a lot of other social and, um, you know, things relating to class and status that are associated from the era and I guess with Jack the Ripper's, he's, by choosing his victims as prostitutes and they were out in the middle of the night in, um, in the areas of Whitechapel and its surrounds, he basically, it was quite confronting, I guess, for the upper class and middle class Victorians of the time because this was a side of society, especially given the way that Queen Victoria was, how conservative she was, that they but didn't even she want to had talk an about. in this case. She did, and what 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 was that? Oh, it wasn't a. In many sense, Queen Victoria was like uh, any other woman. This was kind of um, before the, uh, uh, where before monarchs became much more guarded about um, how a monarch uh, should be. But she was uh, oh, reacting okay. like any other person uh, would uh, to the newspapers, and actually sent some uh, letters to certain uh, key individuals in the police. I believe it, even asking like a. Uh, uh, was there a, a, uh, any news on the case? Uh, was there uh, a, a way of uh, guarding the area better? The sort of things you'd expect any kind of uh, 
ordinary person reading the newspapers uh, to be uh, yeah. looking at. It was just that uh, she was obviously a much more prominent individual. Oh, okay. Oh, that's but that says something about how far-reaching the news was. Yeah, because it was such a sensational sort of, um, you know, it was one of the first big sensations. We're used to it now. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a new true crime um, situation that's happened in the US with a, uh, a young woman that was unfortunately killed while she was traveling with her partner. And they were doing the whole van life blogging thing. Both of them were good looking, all the rest of it. Uh, and then he returned home. She never returned home. And, um, there's, you know, camera, there's footage from police officers interviewing them about a domestic of devi- a violence dispute. And now that's all blown up all over the media. And that's for the time because they were, on social media, they were internet bloggers, they were doing the whole van life thing and that's very much for the time. So I guess like you're saying that, like why wouldn't Queen Victoria? And really for us here in Australia and I guess like in the US or Canada, we have to drive everywhere and it takes ages to get anywhere. But when I was living in London, I was often struck at how close, you know, even though everything was very densely packed, at how close everything was. I used to walk from the city of London into the West End all the time. And the Londoners that I knew and that were friends with were like, oh, my God, you're going to walk that far? And I'm like, it's only like five, six k's. It's not that far. It's not well, even it was that. Well, a big controversy when that uh, apartment building with the cladding went up in flames, what was it, three, four years ago now, that yes. it was within walking distance to this uh, very wealthy uh, street that looked like it was taken out of the pages of Mary Poppins and the controversy was you had this uh, uh, impoverished apartment block uh, in trouble whereas up the street you had this nice neighborhood where half the buildings weren't even occupied because they were investment properties. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Like you can walk all over the place. So really, I mean, some nights after work in summer, I worked near St. Paul's Cathedral. I used to walk to Buckingham Palace on my way home. I'll walk to Buckingham Palace and jump on the train, depending on which part of London I was living in at the time. And I thought nothing of that. And whereas the Londoners that I knew were like, oh, my God, that's a long way to go. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> like, that being from Australia, you know, it takes ages to get anywhere. So, and, you know, really when you have to drive your car, you are going quite a long way. So, um, yeah, so I used to love that aspect of living in London. So I guess my point with that is Buckingham Palace was not technically that far away from Whitechapel. So, of course, um, Queen Victoria would be like, hang on a minute, this is getting a bit too close to home as well. So, <laughs> yeah, mind, you, so- uh, mind you, it is um, when you are thinking in the distance measured in how you walk and go on carriage and stuff, it, you can sort of... Uh, uh, recalibrate the distance in your mind compared to uh, comparing distance of a modern car or train line, but yeah. it, it is uh, shocking how geographically nearby you can be. Yes, yeah, and that was one of the things I loved about living in London. If you didn't need a car, it was actually better off not to have one. Um, it was only when you kind of got out into the more like greater London and then further out into the different, uh, you know, going into Buckinghamshire and all the rest of it that a car would have been handy, but definitely living in London and if you're living near public transport and I suppose at that time um, you know with the advent not that they used rail to get around London but at least uh, you know there was probably better walking routes and, and, and different ways they of did have around. a bit of an underground system by them but it was uh, still an in infancy oh okay that's interesting to know I know that you um, love trains and railways and stuff so <laughs> but I suppose like relating to back to the women um, 
it was the way that they that then the media then covered. So as Matt was saying that you know at that time in the Victorian era, you know um, maybe not the working class children so much, although I guess they did get a degree of education. But middle and definitely upper class, everyone went to school. Everyone went to primary school anyway. So the ability of people to be able to read. And then the cost of, you know, printing was cheaper to do. People could buy newspapers. So it became a modern soap opera and people were quite fearful because of what they were reading, the sensational... And that you could actually get um, popular... You could get newspapers quickly to sort of all over the country um, within a, a day or two. Yeah, that's right. So, and, you know, Manchester was reporting it and different areas of the UK were reporting on it as well. So that was kind of a function of the time too, just how much, you know, the daily pop, pulp fiction sort of mentality of what newspapers were like then, although I don't think the British press has changed that much. But um, and I, I think it's that, probably gone downhill. <laughs> I suppose. Um, and also just sort of like, you know, you had commentators as well and people that would write opinion pieces as well as sort of more straight, you know, news, I guess. And they were expressing either judgment or sympathy on these different victims. And, oh, you know, some of them were poor victims of circumstances. Some of the women deserve what they got, you know. And, of course, uh, and, you know, I guess polite society at that point in time just, just didn't want to know. So, <laughs> so, you know, they drank, they slept around, they had this and that, and we don't want to know people like that. But, you know, you're never going to stamp out the world's oldest profession. So... Um, and the police really just, you know, were sort of unsure of... I mean, to be a young police officer then and, and, and stumbling across these horrific scenes, how would you ever have been the same again? Well, to say something about the attitude of the Victorian times to sex workers was, um, I think, shown quite well because I did this uh, sort of law subject for beginners when I was in uni, and I remember there's a particular um, trial because... That's what happens in common law, which in places like Australia and England use. Like you have previous cases and they inform decisions made by judges for similar circumstances. And mm -hmm. there was an instance where a prostitute had bought a carriage. Now, this was obviously not a Whitechapel prostitute. This was one that was fairly well off, one that could afford to uh, buy a nice carriage and be seen by clients in a good place. And yeah, yeah. Uh, there was like um, uh, some issue with the carriage manufacturer and it was just like an ordinary consumer issue. But because she was a sex worker and this was about uh, that uh, late Victorian period, the court system was like, sorry, you're a prostitute, your case doesn't exist, we'll have nothing to do with you. It, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the attitude now is a, a fair bit different. If you're, if, uh, if you're buying a, a, an item, you have the same consumer rights. But yeah. that just that just says something about how you were a, a writ, written off entity. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose also, um, you know, in some of the research that I did on the media at the time, there was also sort of a political view. Um, and at the end of 1888, when they still hadn't caught the perpetrator, then the, the papers sort of started turning on the Metropolitan Police. And they well, even that. arguing um, that uh, because they hadn't offered a, an award, which was um, apparently uh, they'd recently had a change in Home Office policy about award, uh, offering awards uh, uh, for a capture of a perpetrator, and they were accused of that, but uh, that there was bias. But no, it was just simply that uh, they were following procedure at the time. Yeah, and I guess, and then I guess the general view of the papers at the time that even though they felt bad for the women and that they were all obviously victims of a terrible crime, 
they had, you know, it's sort of their fault because they work there and they're in that vulnerable position and they're part of the problem with the general crime in London. So um, even the first victim, Polly Nichols, she was, she was, um, they sort of attached that to her as well. And they, you know, also alcohol and drinking at the time, which was still sort of very frowned on, um, especially the sort of, you know, they're sort of upper class drinking and quaffing some wine and scotch and all that. And then there's like lower class drinking, which is people just getting drunk in the streets, I guess. So I think uh, almost all the victims uh, had um, chronic alcoholism. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's a coping mechanism, isn't it? I mean, people sort of, you know, um, they now understand that there are hereditary factors involved with alcoholism, but back then it was really just a numbing sort of element of people's lives. They just drank to sort of, oh, this, you know, makes me space out a bit and I'm not thinking about having to go back out to quote unquote work tonight. So, um, um well, they take it, took it to this uh, extreme of alcoholism, but we also need to remember that the attitude to alcohol at that time was quite different because not only did they have nothing like the uh, warnings against, uh, uh, addiction to substance that we have now, but also mm-hmm. the phrase drinking like water had actually quite a lot of literal meaning because that was still kind of up to that last period where in a lot of regions it was actually uh, common to not drink water and only drink sort of mild forms of alcohol um, and often that was actually quite safer than local water supplies. Um, that was quite prominent during the cholera outbreak, um, knowing where people didn't drink water and they didn't have the cholera in those areas. Um, but it just does say something about how closely linked um, drinking was to different communities, and it wasn't uh, quite the same as we do, as regard alcoholism now. Yeah, oh, that's a very interesting point that you brought up. I suppose then a lot of people saw alcohol then having medicinal um, properties. I mean, it definitely has medicinal properties in terms of cleaning wounds and things like that. But yeah, I, I mean, it's... none of these victims yeah. had that attitude to, to alcohol. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> this isn't like um, a, a puritanical state in, a, in Boston or the likes. It was, um, this wasn't a teetotal area. Right. Okay. So you know, we we um they they tried to do. Did they have prohibition in the UK as well as in the US in the 1920s? Or I don't believe so. They did have uh, very vocal anti-drinking uh, uh, lobby groups uh, uh, because it was coming from similar pressure uh, pressure societies uh, that led to prohibition in the US. Uh, like I found some old uh, books, uh, even in my uni library back uh, before they put all the books into storage rooms so they could make nice uh, reading lobby rooms. And right. uh, looking for some of those, that you had all these um, uh, people going on to rants about, there is no place for drinking in modern British society. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually... It's actually amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. that would, you know, in itself, just looking at the role of alcohol in all the different eras of society would be a fascinating study. Like, yeah, I mean, to an extent, uh, some of the things uh, claimed argued about alcohol was reasonable because we're not just talking about a casual drink on a Friday with friends. Like, uh, for example, quite often, um, and even a few decades later, um, factory workers um, working on projects like the Titanic, the way wages were given out at the time was that you had a foreman responsible for a small group of workers. They'd each be given the large pay packet, which they'd distribute to the workers. But what often happened was that first on payday, they would go to a bar and the foreman would be buying rounds for everyone and everybody's income really was whatever was left over from those times. And so it wasn't a, 
it, it wasn't unreasonable that a lot of groups would have preferred to uh, minimize or get rid of drinking so that uh, families weren't impoverished from neglect for that reason. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I suppose it's a very unique and interesting legacy. I suppose it was a perfect storm of the cultural norms of the time, the um, the work that the women who were the victims were, the brutality of the crimes, which I don't think had been seen quite like that before. You know, you had photographs of the victims as well. You know, the photographs that they could take. You had certain, you know, things. I mean, it must have been a very horrifying sight for anyone to have found these bodies. And the role of the media, you know, the role of Victorian society. So I think you just had a really interesting... And the fact that, you know, let's face it, most true crime, um, you know, famous stories endure, especially if there is still uh, questions about who committed the crime. And this is an unsolved case. So Yeah, and, well, to be honest, the sad truth for this uh, case is that we wouldn't probably know because like a lot of people uh, have a reasonable knowledge of um, the lives of the Jack the Ripper victims. If we actually knew who Jack the Ripper was, uh, there would be like many other serial killers, just footnotes and it would be the killer that would be mostly known about. Right. Okay. So uh, yeah, it's just going to have an enduring legacy. They, you know, they, even if, even if they all of a sudden stumbled on, yep, we know exactly it was some DNA evidence or something, which they don't have. I don't believe that they do. So there has been just, some revelations, but I think could we, uh, well, every uh, year or two years, there's another documentary or podcast that has some core um, evidence uh, about um, new DNA comparisons and it is very fascinating academically but it's still I don't believe we've got anywhere near a perfect proof um, right. like I, I don't think we're going to be likely to see an official reopening of the case and case closed uh, sort of thing that's right. So if we just quickly, um, what we like to do in our true crime podcast is obviously being lovers of um, lovers of films. We'll just talk a little bit briefly about some of the um, some of the films that they've made. One of the I haven't seen this one now. Are you going to kill me because it's an Alfred Hitchcock film? But The Lodger. Uh, yeah, it's a good one. one. Yeah. So The Lodger. There's a couple of different versions of The Lodger. There's the nine, So Alfred Hitchcock he directed the 1927 version. So that's when a late a landlady suspects her new lodger is a madman killing women in London. Then there was uh, a remake of The Lodger uh, called The Phantom Fiend as well that had a different name. Then there was another remake of The Lodger in 1944. That one had Merle Oberon and George Sanders in it. We have The Man in the Attic, so 1953. That might be worth having a look at at some point. That had Jack Palance in it. We've had other movies made into the night, you know, actually all through the era, TV films, you name it, they've had it. Jack the Ripper 1976 with Joseph, uh, sorry, Josephine Chaplin, who's Charlie Chaplin's daughter, I know her. Uh, and then we also had, oh yeah, Jack's Back, which was 1988, haven't seen that one, but that's somebody in Los Angeles committing the murders. We have one with um, Michael Caine and Armand Asante, uh, Jack the Ripper, 1988. So there's plenty of TV films, there's horror films, but my favourite... And these are just the ones that sort of uh, outwardly reference him. There's plenty more subtle ones. Yeah, definitely. But just to close off with my favourite... I haven't really seen that many Jack the Ripper films, but I do want to see the different versions of The Lodger. 
was the one starring one of my favourites, Edge of Sanity, starring Anthony Perkins. Uh, I want to say 1990 or 1989, 1990. I'll never forget this film. Uh, basically trading off the fact that he played Norman Bates, um, but that's fine, like it's a job. Uh, and what they did in this film was obviously shot in Europe. It was a mashup between Jack the Ripper and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, if you want to get your head around that. So um, basically Henry Jekyll had created Mr. Hyde and Mr. Hyde was the one that was doing the Jack the Ripper murders. So... <laughs> well, it's not that um, take a far off reality in many cases. I mean, uh, if you can be believed, Ted Bundy claimed to have the sort of uh, uh, Mr. Hyde uh, that came Persona. out uh, during his uh, hunting phases. Yeah, definitely. And I think actually any serial killer could say that, you know, how many people have lived in plain sight for so many years? You know, you look at... Um, the BTK killer and all these other sorts of people and they were living in polite society for many years and then on the side they were doing these horrible things. You know, you look at those people that lock women up in their basements and for years on end and no one suspects otherwise. So they definitely well, have this... Well, while we're on the topic, if I could briefly go back to Jack yeah. Ripper, I think uh, yeah. one final thing we have to dispel is that many people from fiction have this idea of uh, Jack the Ripper figure being a person in a top hat and a cape going into a uh, dingy area of London and mm -hmm. we have to and doing their uh, deeds and we have to remember that this was the most working class nasty area you could go nobody with uh, anything slightly nicer than a than rags on would have probably have been beaten up and had their wallet stolen so and yes. as is often the case with serial killers they're often very good at adapting to society they're not dripping fangs when they're not killing so i think yeah. <laughs> whoever the person would have been would have been a very normal looking working class person yeah definitely who you know naturally fit into that society even if they did commute in on the weekends they still would have fit into what was going on there but yeah if you ever do get a chance to see edge of sanity of <laughs> it's quite um it's quite an interesting film and a couple of great lines that i still quote to this day and, I'll have um, to find it. I keep thinking, though, of the Sanity uh, music and DVD retailer that used to be around. <laughs> I mean, at this stage of Anthony's career, it was made probably two or three years before Anthony passed away, and he was going to Europe a lot and making a lot of sort of quote-unquote horror-style films over there because it was really after he played um, Norman the second time in Psycho 3, that's when his career became primarily horror-based. And um, it's just, you know, they're at the end of the film, you know, not to give too much away, the polite character he's playing, Henry Jekyll, is just sort of looking in the window and he gives this Norman Bates look and it's just like, oh, my God, that was the marquee shot everyone was looking for. So <laughs> definitely something to check out. But the story of Jack the Ripper is one for the ages it will, it will endure. It is very interesting. There's plenty of pop culture stuff about it, podcasts, websites, movies that are documentaries. I watched an interesting documentary last week on it. Um, some really, I know, and The Lodger, Alfred Hitchcock, that's, that's the one I want to see. So, Matt, is there anything you'd like to say before we finish off today's pod, uh, podcast? I'd like to mention that there was actually uh, recently, uh, maybe five years ago, released a play about the canonical five victims, oh, uh, right. which would be interesting to see if it, if it does come uh, to Melbourne. 
but it does kind of bring up the sad point of uh, uh, very often the victims become, like we said before, the victims often become footnotes when you know the killer. Uh, About the only good thing of this particular killer, Jack the Ripper, never being uh, properly caught or identified is that uh, people perhaps have uh, changed their focus more to his victims and their, their lives. Well, that's a good thing. And of course, with every true crime case we discuss, it's the victims who are always foremost in our mind, as interesting as some of the other stuff is, where the political pop culture, what was going on in society, who did what, who said what, who got caught when, whenever. The, the important people in this case and the people we should always think about, um, just as Matt was saying, are the victims. And we do feel sorry for these victims that they had to die in such a terrible way. Um, Matt will just quickly tell you. So we've got a glimpse of hell is on Facebook, and we're yes. on Instagram and uh, Twitter. So okay. you can um, find our social media releases on those channels. Our podcast is released on Spotify and on um, Apple Podcasts, and we also have our YouTube channel where we release our podcast episodes as well. Even though it uh, is only an audio channel because YouTube's uh, such a big platform, we uh, find the best to release episodes there as well fantastic thank you for that recap matt thank you for joining me this week and thank you to all everybody out there for joining us as well as we viewed a glimpse of hell thank you and have a good one